Welcome back to the 163rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, all of which have to do with realignment. One that is political, one that is a little bit more philosophical, and one that is economic. And yes, one of those is a little bit of a stretch, but you're just going to have to stick around to find out, because I liked the symmetry of saying that. And also, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, right, to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So are we living through one of the greatest political realignments of our lifetime? We've seen a lot of people go away from the Democratic Party. We've seen a lot of people run away from the Republican Party because of Trump, because of the progressivism in the Democratic Party, because of just overall sentiment changing. Will we ever see something like this again? You know, will it have to be our children or our grandchildren that see something like this? Or do we just have a whole bunch of realignments all the time? And you're going to sit there and say, Alex, wow, you're just really, really overblowing this one. But I think it's worth exploring. And that's why we have a few of the articles that we have today. Our first one coming from the Washington Examiner. A realignment is happening before our eyes. So, as I talked about, there are lots of different realignments, so you're probably wondering which one. But then again, if you know how this channel works and you know the different stories and different articles that I read from Washington Examiner leans a little bit to the right. So they could be talking about the realignment of the Republican Party or they could be talking about the realignment of the Democratic Party. But considering it's the Washington Examiner... Which one do you think it's going to be? And three, two, one. Well, if you guess the Democratic Party, you would be correct. And what has the Democratic Party had or done for the last, you know, I guess 11 years, half of my lifetime at this point? They have focused on politics from a subgroup point of view. They have the idea that, hey, we're going to put together a coalition of different subgroups of the population and win. Now, that's obviously how politics has worked for a long time. But this particular subgroup that they've been aiming at, it's the things are starting to change a little bit. They can't necessarily guarantee that they're 100% going to get anybody in this one group. And yes, if you are a astute person who cares about politics, you'll probably understand what I mean. It's the Obama coalition. It's the coalition of minorities within the United States that make up a good chunk of the Democratic voting bloc, whether it be the black population, whether it be the Hispanic population, whether it be the Filipino population. A lot of these minorities, you know, tend to vote a little bit more on the Democratic side, or at least they have throughout the last 12 to, you know, 13 years, ever since Obama came around, basically. And now things are really starting to shift. You see a certain sentiment that Trump brings to the table, which is, hey, we're going to try to uplift the working class. Now, does he always come through on that? Do some of his policies actually help the working class? Not necessarily. But there are certain policies that he pursues that has helped a lot of working class people. And guess what? Because these minorities are a certain segment of the population, when you help one segment of the population that's not defined by race, but rather by economic status that has a large split in it that is 
representative of every single piece of the population, you're going to catch some of these minority groups and they're going to reconsider voting for a Democrat when they see what a Republican can do for them. Just like you saw a lot of people who were white in the past who were working class who have changed their mind or maybe people in Appalachia or just union members in the working class. They're starting to realize, oh, some of Trump's policies actually put a little bit more money in my pocket and, you know, they made it a little bit easier for me to buy those essential goods to maybe put my kid through a a summer training camp so they could become a really good athlete, things of this nature. So when you actually go for a policy that's meant to uplift the economic bracket at the bottom or the middle or even help the top, guess what? That affects all the other subgroups that you spoke that were, you know, the Democrats were relying upon. So that's how the Republicans have started to chip away at it a little bit. But it's not just that simple. There's also a lot of values that the left has purported to talk about for generations, and now they're shifting away from them a little bit. And these minority groups are saying, okay, hold on. Now we need to reevaluate. Are you really going to serve our community the best you can? Are you really looking out for our segment of the population? And a lot of people are saying yes, but some are saying no, and this is causing this realignment. Quote, The Democratic Party's racial obsession may mask it, but you are seeing a shift in political realignment of racial demographics right before your eyes. This was observed on Tuesday by Washington Post reporter Aaron Blake, who noticed that former President Donald Trump is, quote, performing historically well among black and Hispanic voters in head-to-head polling with President Joe Biden. The ongoing shift in voting patterns among Hispanics, particularly in Florida and Texas, has been well documented. But Trump is averaging 20% among black voters, which would be a massive shift. As Blake notes, no GOP presidential candidate has hit that mark in the past 60 years. End quote. So you may be saying, okay, yeah, Alex, a realignment is happening. Great. What, why does it matter? What's the point? Well, as I mentioned earlier, ever since Obama, the coalition that the Democrats have used to get into office is a lot of different minority groups coming together, plus a few educated uh, people who've gone through college or so on and so forth. And those are not mutually exclusive groups. I'm just saying that it tends to be a party that appeals to the college educated who also tried to focus in on subgroups like minorities or women and things of this nature. And for the longest time, the Democrats have relied on a really strong minority turnout. They could almost always rely, I believe it was north of 90% of the black population to almost always vote for them. I believe the Hispanic population, it was north of like 45% to always vote for them. And then there was not a, you know, it wasn't like 55 for Republicans. It was kind of more like maybe 30 something. And then there was a, a split in the middle. The statistics could be a little bit more drastic or they could be a little bit closer together. But the point is that for the longest time, the Democrats have relied on this. It's an electoral strategy that they've employed. And if they still wanted to rely on it going into 2024, they need to realize that it's not going to work. 
Now, I think that obviously they don't have to rely on it as strongly anymore. They've actually gotten a few more women to come over to their side or to at least be okay with some of the other policy prescriptions they have because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and their stance on abortion. And no matter where a woman stands on fiscal policy or foreign affairs, maybe she feels as though abortion is really important. She wants to have that choice, so on and so forth. So they have started courting some new viewers, and they've probably gotten, sorry, some new voters, and they have probably gotten a good segment of the urban population as well over the course of Trump's presidency because he's so crass. But that doesn't mean if he, you know, cleaned up his act or there was a different candidate that those urban voters would stick. The women who care about abortion, they probably would stick. But my point is that they have to re- adjust their strategy due to this realignment. And they have been doing that. I'm not saying it's going to be doom and gloom for Democrats. To think that way is extremely naive because political sentiments change all the time and issues that are important to people. Obviously, the one issue voters, they're going to be swayed by certain arguments on one side or the other. So if you have a president like Joe Biden who's in there and doing something that's really important to somebody who may be a moderate or even a Republican, but they think, oh, well, Trump won't actually care about this. Joe Biden's actually doing something about it. It can shift. And Biden has done a lot of different things of this nature in order to get those one issue of voters or those voters who are very, very interested in certain policy, like environmental policy with his IRA or canceling student debt, things of this nature, you know, the issues about environmentalism to get the young kids and also the college debt to get the young kids. He's done lots of these sort of things in order to shift the voting pool for the next upcoming election. There's no doubt about that. But if they rely too heavily on their old strategy, it will fail. So why else is this notable? Quote, the shift is notable, but it is not a surprise. Black men, in particular, have shifted to the GOP over the last four presidential cycles from 5% voting for John McCain in 2008 to 11 backing Mitt Romney in 2012. Trump won 13% of black men in 2016 and 18% in 2020. And Republicans won 17% of black men in the 2022 midterm elections. As a whole, 11% of black voters backed Trump it, sorry, 12% of black voters backed Trump in 2020 and 13 backed Republicans in 2022. Sure, it may be a long or large jump from 13 to 20% in one electoral cycle, but given the current economic conditions and Biden's disapproval ratings, along with this ongoing shift, it would not be a surprise in the least, end quote. And when they say here that the shift from 13 to around 20%, there's this idea, oh, well, if the Democrats can't lock down a certain percent of the black vote, then they're not going to be able to get it. If they don't get that 20%, then, you know, they still have to work their butt off. If they don't get that 20%, then that means that Joe Biden still has a solid chance. I, I Like I said earlier, I don't really believe in that. I honestly think that's just, it's stupid to even think, nah, not stupid to even think in that way, because the statistics may not lie. You know, if Joe Biden can't lock down over 80% of the black vote, then maybe it really does mean he, he can't win anymore. But I think that's under current conditions, and that's not including the people that have changed their mind on certain issues that have shifted from one party to another. The people who don't necessarily participate in polls, but still go out there and vote and have changed their mind from Trump because of all these indictments. So 
to to say it that way, the framing that oh, if the Democrats lose their hold over this majority, then they're just going to never be able to win again, or they won't be able to win this time. I I think it's a little short sighted, but then again, the article is trying to lay out a very specific argument that this realignment is going to hurt the Democrats. So. What has happened in the past? Why are we seeing a little bit of this change? Where has it really been the most prominent? And that's one thing the Washington Examiner breaks down here in one of the last paragraphs. After Florida and Texas Republicans performed well among Hispanics, some Democrats resorted to accusing those Hispanics of being brainwashed fools. Losing their grip on this racial grievance politics would be devastating for the Democratic Party, especially if black voters could continue the trend and become a more competitive demographic for Republicans. This shift has been occurring over the past decade and a half, and it will only become more noticeable as more and more liberals, such as Blake, continue to discover it. It will also be a welcome challenge to the Democratic Party's racial pandering. Regardless of what replaces it, our politics will be better if the changing political and racial dynamics erase the racial obsession that has dominated our politics for the last 15 years, end quote. So yes, in a really idealistic world, I 100% agree with what the author is saying here. If we stop worrying about racial politics, if we stop worrying about identity politics, and I'm not saying that as a buzzword or in the cultural sense, I mean genuinely identity politics where you focus in on identity characteristics of a certain segment of the population or just certain individuals who you want to vote your way, and then you appeal to them based on their identity alone. So, great example. Ah, you are a woman. Well, as a woman, you obviously care about the health of your sexual organs, and we want you to have control over those choices, so you should be pro-choice and we're appealing to you on that message just because you're a woman. You know, you're using solely that criteria in order to send that message. Well, some women actually, they may care about their sexual organs reproducing, you know, in a fine manner, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily are pro-choice. That doesn't necessarily mean that they believe abortion is morally right or saying, ah, just because you're black, we're going to appeal to you as a giant subgroup of the population with policies that focus on just helping black people. Maybe that black person actually cares about another issue that doesn't necessarily directly affect his community, but maybe he doesn't care about some of these other policy prescriptions that are talked about that would, you know, some people in the black community would love, but pretending that they are a group that all identify and think the same way is extremely destructive. And the reason I think this is a little bit naive and I say this because, yes, in an ideal world, I want a place where we don't base our politics on identity politics. But I think this is naive, that we will never get past p dividing people into groups and then appealing to them and treating them based on certain identity characteristics. One, because it's a very effective way for politicians to target certain segments of the population. If they can say, okay, we need to send out an ad that will boost our vote in Milwaukee. Oh, guess what? Milwaukee has a lot of working class union members. Okay, we're going to send out a pro-union message, you know, targeted geofence within Milwaukee, so on and so forth. That's how politicians in these 
statistical and analytical consultants really view politics, which is, okay, we have groups, we have segments of the population. How do we directly appeal to them? Ah, we're going to look at characteristics that we know they have, and we're going to take a bet that more or less they're going to believe something so that we can advertise to them and try, if not to really lock in their vote, maybe persuade them to come to our side. And especially in our age of big data, when we have a lot of big data on people, maybe this won't be the case. Maybe the author's right that we could actually have individually targeted ads that just focus on who you are based on what you do online. And, oh, okay, so you spend a lot of time shopping on Amazon, so maybe they can, if Biden did a certain bill that affects Amazon shoppers and may reduce the carrier fee or the shipping fee because there was a union problem or something to that effect, then he could individually target you with that ad because you use Amazon a lot and Amazon sells your data off to data brokers. Maybe that is possible. But as of right now, the best way to catch a lot of fish is to throw a really wide net through a subgroup. If you know that there is a school of salmon coming through the river, you're going to cast a really wide net to catch all of them. You're not going to get all of them. Some of the salmon are going to slip away. You may even get a few little tuna in there, but you have to treat it like a group that you can get. You have to get a special net for those salmon, which in this case, for the analogy, the net would be the issue that you want to talk about and then you use it to scoop up all those salmon or those votes from people. I know my analogy, it makes sense a little bit. They're falling apart in some places, but that is the mindset, and I really hope it does change. I hope we don't just appeal to subgroups of the population because guess what happens when you start breaking people up into groups? There's more divisions. We lose our central identity as Americans, and then there's more hostility because you can say, ah, they're part of the other. For the longest time, us humans, we created tribes, and anyone outside our tribe we didn't trust. And that's exactly what we're doing, but on a political level, breaking people into subgroups and you know, accusing the other side or another subgroup of doing something terrible or absolutely evil. You know how the terrible and absolutely evil language that we use within this po political game is. We love to call the other side something horrendous just to you know flame things up a little bit especially the people who get clicks from those sort of interactions online but that's enough from that one let's jump to our more philosophical realignment which is coming from counterpunch war is a precondition of peace when I first read this one, you know, this is, let's be clear, I'm going to start from the very beginning. This is the stretch because it's not so much of a realignment that, oh, the neocon class or let's just put it this way, the middle ground military industrial complex class, the people that are all for keeping the defense budget exactly where they are not saying anything good or bad, bad about them, but I'm just identifying them. They've existed for a long time, so it's not necessarily a realignment. When you see them going out there saying, no, we need to keep funding Ukraine, we need to make sure that Russia is whittled down and destroyed and they don't have the capacity to invade anywhere else, this is a talking point that was used during the Cold War that has been used during Iraq and when we went into Afghanistan. It's, we need to fight them there so they don't fight us here. So this is not necessarily a huge shift, but the sentiment change in the broader population is. 
we are seeing a lot of people, just like after Iraq, who are not okay with the war. And there's sort of a realignment going on in the populace. So that's why I called it a philosophical realignment, even though the article itself does not necessarily dive into the populist response as much. It actually spends most of the time criticizing this kind of idea that, oh, in order to have peace, we actually have to go to war first and really push Putin and the Russians to the negotiating table. Quote, the recent New York Times editorial, September 15th, opposing negotiations between Ukraine and Russia was so hallucinatory, it might have been written by an AI chatbot. It is in America's national interest, the editors wrote, quote, to lead its NATO allies in demonstrating that they will not tolerate Mr. Putin's revengeist ambitions. It is a demonstration of America's commitment to democracy in leadership that otherwise would-be aggressors are watching. America's commitment to democracy has always been tedious at best. And, you know, I'm going to keep going with this here in a second, but I, I think that it's a very high-minded idea from the New York Times. It's honestly one that I imbibed myself as a young person. I didn't necessarily see 9-11. I didn't see the direct effects of Iraq and Afghanistan, but I did, and you know, to some degree, it's still deep down within me that I believe that America has something to offer the world. We have a great system to offer the world in its purely idealistic sense. But also, when you do look at the modern system, you look at how things have shifted here in America, how there is corruption, how there is this tie between the military complex and the government, or looking at how lobbyists can influence politicians, or politicians just being corrupt in general and taking money from donors. You know, when I say taking money, I don't mean, you know, having a friend and doing something with them. I mean, like, literally taking money from donors and then not reporting it, or, you know, taking gifts that are over a certain amount and not reporting it when it directly affects their decision-making. Now, you know, there's still a little bit of leeway there, and it is a gray area because, you know, some politicians and lobbyists, they may just be genuinely friends, and they actually go out and do things together. They do favors for one another. But I mean, like, oh, there's this one politician who gets shady money from an interest group, not one of their best friends, a random interest group, and then they change their mind on a certain policy. So that kind of corruption. So it is hard to say, hey, we have a beautiful system. Let's bring it to the rest of the world when we can't even fix our own house. I believe Jordan Peterson said it in 12 Rules to Life. Criticize other people's houses once you have your own in order. And that's not just him. There are lots of people who have said this, but it is really true. How can we promote that we want to defend democracy? We want to expand democracy around the world. And yet we can't even guarantee that it works perfectly and idealistically in our own system. Now, we're better than a lot of other countries, don't get me wrong, but do we really have a moral high ground to stand on to believe that we need to be the ones spreading this around the world? That really has come into question for me and a lot of people over the last few years. So where is this article leading us or what is the author going to use as evidence? It's really the negotiations that haven't happened or could have happened but haven't happened between Ukraine and Russia. Quote, any peace negotiation between the warring parties, the Time editorial author states, are premature because neither side is willing to negotiate. 
In fact, Russia has publicly welcomed peace incentives following successive papal, Chinese, Indonesian, African, Turkish, and Saudi Arabian interventions. Their rhetoric has never been put to the test, however, because Ukraine has insisted upon full Russian withdrawal from the Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, as a precondition of direct negotiations. Ukraine's stipulation is also a bit maximalist of a goal. They only, the only viable course, the Time editorial bots say, quoting Biden, quote, is to give Ukraine the weapons and resources to defend itself though that so that when the time comes, it would be in the strongest position possible at the negotiating table. In other words, negotiating will come after success on the battlefield, end quote. And this is really the, the battle. Yes, I know, I know, it's kind of weird framing. This is the battle that the Ukrainians and the people of America find themselves in, which is, do we concede now? Do we come to the negotiating table now and risk losing things? Or do we keep pushing until the Russians are completely gone and we have a little bit more leverage in order to excise them and really call this war to an end? And, you know, I, I think that it's a little bit... Once again, I'm using the word naive to believe that the Ukrainians will be able to fully expel the Russians. And it's not to say the Ukrainians aren't capable. It's just the Russians are the Russians. They're going to keep throwing a whole bunch of men. They are very dispassionate. And when I say that the leadership is very dispassionate, they will keep throwing men at this because it is a battle of pride at this point. And they don't necessarily care about their citizens. I'm not saying they don't care about their citizens overall. That would be extremely harsh and jaded of me to say. But for the most part, their larger political goals, their national identity goals are more important than any one person's life. So they're going to keep on pushing. And we have not seen great project progress on the part of Ukraine, even when we start arming them with more weapons or more unique weapons or you know more deadly weapons. So yes, I, I do believe that it's kind of a, a hamster wheel that I've heard this analogy recently and I'm starting to 100% agree with it. It's a hamster wheel that we just keep jumping onto and saying, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. eventually, you know, when it stops, when the hamster wheel stops, that's when we'll get off. But it's not going to stop if you keep going. And it will eventually tire you out and you will fall off of it out of exhaustion. And I hope that's not the case with Ukraine. Honestly, I hope we can find an off-ramp before we get to the point where it's really going to actually be more devastating for either Ukraine or the NATO countries. So we'll see how that one pans out. All right, so then we have one last article that comes from the American Institute for Economic Research. Truck this. Why I'm Leaving the Long Haul Industry. And the fact that there's a trucker writing in the American Institute for Economic Research and that they are so well-versed in all of this economic data, I, I honestly, when I first read it, I was surprised and I need to get rid of that misconception. You know, I had a very particular picture of a trucker. A few of my friends went into, I say my friends, a few of my extended friends have gone into trucking and I had a very particular picture of it. And this is a really interesting article that talks about the industry's past and the future. But I just want to highlight one or two little article, you know, subsections, and then you can go read it for yourself because it is a bit of a longer one. So here's this gentleman's story. 
quote, over the last 20 years, I've been a truck driver. I suppose I always knew I would be ever since the career day in the third grade when among all of my kids dressed like doctors and baseball players, there I stood dressed like Jerry Reed from Smokey and the Bandit. Pop culture in the 80s painted the picture of truckers as rugged men, wild and free, burdened with nothing except their own wanderlust. The romanticized vision of the American trucker still lingers in the back of my mind. But in recent years, the burden of government regulation has proven to be greater than my desire to see what's over the next hill. Oppressive regulations in the trucking industry has been around almost as long as the iconic chrome bulldog on the hood of Mack Trucks. Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Federal Motor Carrier Act, FMCA, of 1935 during his first term. This gave the Interstate Commerce Commission, an agency originally formed to regulate railroads, the authority to regulate the burgeoning business of moving goods by tractor-trailer. The ICC ultimately decided which companies could haul certain goods for whom, where, and what they could charge. The ICC even decided if new transportation companies could enter the market by requiring eager upstarts to prove their services were, quote-unquote, needed, end quote. So... You may be wondering why I ran through all of that and didn't cut it off somewhere, because there is more to the story here, but I wanted to have a little bit of the context, which is, you know, there was a commission that heavily, heavily involved itself in the shipping of goods across the nation. And, you know, some legal scholars would probably say that's completely okay because Congress has power over interstate commerce, and this is obviously interstate commerce, which makes it more of a federal government issue than a state's issue. But over time, people came to realize, okay, we're putting a lot of burdensome regulations on these truckers. It's actually causing prices to go up because they have to do X, Y, and Z, which adds costs to their end when they could be getting there for maybe $50, $100 cheaper, and then divide $100 across the 50 items that they have, or let's just make it even across the 100 items that they're carrying, guess what? That means that each item can now be sold or or not necessarily sold directly to the person, but can be sold to the company at a dollar cheaper, which means that the person on the back end, the consumer, is probably going to see a $0.50 saving. So you can see how over-regulation could directly encumber these different companies as they're coming up. And things started to change, and you know, during the 80s, there was a lot of deregulation. But now, the author argues that Pete Buttigieg and his transportation secretary is actually going to up it again. They're going to add a few different monitoring devices. They're going to add a few more restrictions to drivers in the trucking industry to make sure that things are a little bit more safe, no doubt, but also, at the end of the day, directly encumbering some drivers and therefore encumbering their companies, therefore increasing costs, not just for the truckers, but also everybody downstream of them. So the author's point here is the more involved you get in a certain type of business as the government, the less incentive people have to want to do it. Because, hey, if you're going to do your dream job, but you have to deal with a government auditor, you have to deal with a transportation secretary passing new laws that could affect you directly, and you have all these different guidelines and checks that you have to do that actually dissuade you from 
remembering exactly why you loved a certain profession, less people are going to go into it. And you're also going to raise prices because, hey, less people go into that industry because they realize how burdensome it is, meaning that employers have to pay more in order to entice people. Therefore, customers pay a little bit more money. And also the extra regulations on the back end add cost to the journey of that tractor trailer from one side to another because guess what? They have to stop at a weighing station every 50 miles and now they're not you know, actually working for an extra 12 hours if one's really backed up. You, you see how all these extra interferences directly, directly hurt consumers and the prospects of more people coming into certain industries. It doesn't always hold true, but it holds true in this case. So go give it a, a little bit of an extra read. It is a very, very good article. It is linked in the description below. Like and subscribe button. But also, let's jump to our final story, which is our daily delight, which comes from Times Now. Cat's reaction to baby kicks from pregnant lady's belly is adorable. So, you know, I honestly, I don't envy, you know, women who are, are pregnant because they probably get tired of people always touching their bellies. But when it's a cute little cat or a cute little animal, maybe there is an exception. Quote, in a video making rounds on social media, a cat has been seen laying on a pregnant woman's belly. It is then that the baby kicked unexpectedly. Instantly, the surprised cat moved its head. End quote. You know, and honestly, I would love to see or, you know, experience this for the, the first time because it's something very magical in this cat while it probably can't understand all of what's going on there and the beauty of creating a life inside the womb, it's probably like, what in the heck is going on? It still realizes there is something special to it, or at least unique. Quote, the video showcased the cat's astonishment and reaction. Many commented on the clip. One stated, I'm sorry if I was overdramatic there, but it does say, his face by the third kick was like, okay, what the heck is actually going on here, end quote. And if you want to see any of these cute photos or videos or you want to read any of today's articles, like I mentioned before, the link is in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.